We're going to be studying verses 5 through 11 this morning, but in order to get a running start, I want to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 11. After talking about the reign of grace in a believer's life, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For... If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. During our study of Romans over the past um, couple of years, actually, we continue to talk about the best way to understand the gospel. And understanding the gospel can be approached from a lot of angles, but I found the most helpful way of understanding, even the most helpful way of explaining, and especially the most helpful way of applying the gospel is to break it down into three parts, into three categories. The first, as we've said, are are a series of facts. The reality, the historicity of Jesus and his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Those facts that the Bible says happen to take those as literal, historical, geographical facts. The second thing is to understand that those facts have theology embedded in them. That they mean something to God. There are things happening beyond the physical realm, theologically, by God's attribution in heaven that we have to understand. The third part of that is a response, is to repent, is to live right in accordance with those facts and that theology. In the passage before us, all of those three play into one another. In fact, you could almost break it down like that. Paul says, do you understand, believe, remember, is your mind attentive to the facts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection? Do you understand the theology about what happened in that death? There were thousands of people crucified during the lifetime of Jesus, around the death time of Jesus. But his was different theologically. Do we understand the theology of the atonement? But as we read in verse 11, those facts 
and that theology have a life-changing, game-altering, worldview-smashing impact on our life. If those facts are true, and if the theology that God attributes by Scripture to those facts is accurate, we must respond Paul in chapter 5 goes into elaborate detail in the last paragraph on this issue of solidarity. We took it all as one study and this solidarity is very remarkable. He says, we have to understand our identification with Adam and by faith our identification with Christ. He spends a lot of time, I won't review it all, saying we are like Adam in that death reigns in our life. Death reigns in our life because sin resides in our life. Sin resides in our life because somehow in a mysterious way we participated in Adam's sin and both by the seed of transmission physically and spiritually, we all sin. Likewise, because Jesus died in our place, we have solidarity with him. We're sinners because of Adam's sin and our own participation, our own sin. We are also saved by virtue of Christ's death for us, placing our faith in Christ. And we, we, we get all the blessings of his Imputed righteousness to us. At the end of that discussion, he talks about the reign of grace. Death reigned in all of our lives. Death reigns in history. The current death rate is 100%. Everyone dies. But that's not the end for a believer. It's not the end after we die, but it's also not the end while we're alive. In other words, death reigns in the life of an unbeliever, but grace reigns... In the life of a believer. Sin is the master, in other words, in the life of a believer. Righteousness and grace are the master of a believer. Which would conclude anyone who's thinking rightly to say, well, if the more I have of sin, the more grace is applied to me, then it would make sense that I should sin more to receive more grace. And Paul answers that question in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now the question becomes, how did I die to sin? He takes the first four verses to answer that. We died to sin in our solidarity with Christ dying for our sin. And we said last week, he said we were buried with him in baptism. We died with him in baptism. And he's not talking about necessarily the water there, but our association. He's also saying that believers get baptized. And they get baptized after they're believers, not when they're born. It's really simple, really easy to follow. We died with Christ. He died for us at the moment of our conversion. And baptism is shorthand for conversion. That's what he talks about in the first four verses. Now this raises an issue that if you're, if you're attentive to what's going on in contemporary evangelicalism, if you read on the internet anything about this current debate, if you have uh, looked at the top-selling books that are going on right now, Amazon and um, CBD, you'll understand that there is a, a fresh and a new battle on an old and long war about the relationship between justification, being saved, forgiven, grace reigning in our life, imputation of righteousness, our, our sin being imputed to Christ, 
what's the relationship with that moment of God forensically declaring us righteous and our lives? Because we don't live righteously all the time, do we? So what is the relationship between justification and sanctification? Three parts of salvation. Justification being made right with God in a moment of belief. Glorification, going and being with him forever in heaven. That's when we die. And then sanctification. Sanctification is one of the most misunderstood um, uh, subjects in the Christian life. It was certainly one of the things that, are, that is preached on and studied the least. And yet, that's where we live. That's most of our life. Justification happens in an instant. Glorification, we're not there yet. So here we are in the world of sanctification. It comes from the word which means to make holy. A world of becoming holy, becoming like Jesus. Well, the debate that's going on right now is about those who say that justification is really what should guide all of your thoughts about sanctification. Now, who would argue with that? No one. Except for this. They say the free grace of justification should extend into your understanding of sanctification. And the implication is you don't need to really worry or be concerned with fighting against all your sin as a believer because grace is so strong it covers it. Does that not sound like what Paul just answered? One of the top-selling Christian books today is about that very issue, free grace theology. Now, that's a little bit difficult because I believe in free grace, don't you? Grace is absolutely 100% free. God's grace covers every sin we will ever commit, past, present, and future. But to say that we shouldn't concentrate on the residual sin left in our lives after our justification is to miss the entire accent of almost all the New Testament. The Puritans called this the doctrine of mortification. That's a pleasant thought, isn't it? The doctrine of killing yourself. That's a pleasant thought, isn't it? Except Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself Paul says, Christianity in the pursuit of sanctification is ultimately about learning how to die. This is important to yourself and become more alive, as our text will tell us, to God. That's what Paul begins talking about in chapter 6. It's going to extend all the way through chapter 8. We are in the rich, sweet part of sanctification in the book of Romans. We've entitled this series, Aggressive About Sanctification. It really begs the question, are you aggressive? Have you been aggressive? Are you deliberate? Are you intentional? Do you have a strategy, a plan? Do you wake up in the morning knowing that your fight, the fight for your life as a believer is for holiness? Is against sin. Or do you just give up, let go, let God, knowing he'll forgive you anyway? That's the issue that Paul addresses in the passage before us. Yes, we've been forgiven. Yes, we have been baptized into his death by faith. Yes, we have all of our sins atoned for. And yet, we still sin. So what do we do with that? I want to prepare you that the next few chapters, next two and a half chapters of the book of Romans will be excruciating spiritually if you want to take this stuff seriously. 
It is brutal. You are going to learn, how's this for self-esteem? You are going to learn to hate large parts of yourself. You're gonna learn to say, I can't believe I act like this and think like this when Jesus did that for me. It's not a matter of paying him back, of paying a debt. We can never do that. It's a matter of responding to the gospel. The right response to the gospel is a pursuit of holiness. The wrong response to the gospel is let go, let God, just forget. We're going to tackle this text tonight, this morning rather, and look at three ways that the facts of the gospel... Three ways that the facts of the gospel translate into this aggressive sanctification we've been talking about. Paul's talking about putting on the boxing gloves. Doing battle with yourself. Three ways that the facts of the gospel, those, those historical realities, translate into our being aggressive about our holiness, our pursuit of holiness, our sanctification. The first way that this happens is in verse 5. Number 1. The gospel facts, gospel facts translate into sanctifying certainties. Now this is really, really important in the the mind of the apostle. And he's going to go over and over this this idea throughout chapter 6 into chapter 7. And it is almost in every verse of chapter 8. Gospel facts translate into sanctifying certainties. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Circle it. Highlight it. Underline it. Asterisk it. Star it. Whatever you do. Certainly. There's the word. Certainly. We shall also be. United with him is implied in the likeness of his resurrection. First word in this verse is four that leans back to the content of chapter of six verses three and four. That we've died with him, been buried with him, been raised with him. In fact, verse five is somewhat of a repetition of verses three and four. Except for the word certainly. That shows up new. The thought is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the source of... Of a believer's death and resurrection, listen, in reality and spiritually. Yes, we're all going to die physically. Yes, we will raise to either judgment or glory. But the future is not what's in mind here. There, there, we'll, we'll get there at the end of chapter 8. It's, it's there. Paul talks about that, our eschatology. This is not talking about our future death and our future glorification and resurrection. This is talking about how Christ's death and resurrection give us the power to be dead to sin and alive to God right now. Paul does talk about the future, our resurrection, our death, but that's in chapter 8. This is talking about our life now. Now, this is, as I said, a repetition, pretty much almost phrase by phrase, for phrase word for word of, chapter, of verses 3 and 4. Except for that word, certainly. It's a really interesting Greek word. 
It's usually an adversative. It's the Greek word ally. It's a workhorse word. Except for here, it doesn't mean uh, instead of or adversely. It's used here as certainly and certainty. I like how William Hendrickson uh, summarizes verse 5 with these words. He just explains it in an expanded way. Listen to this. He says, For if we have become united with Christ in a death like his, so that his death brought about our death to constantly living in sin, we shall certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is, then surely his bodily resurrection, which happened, will bring about our spiritual resurrection. That is, our walking in, look at the end of verse 4, newness of life. What he's saying is, as sure and certain as Christ rose from the grave, that is as sure and certain as our lives change in a new way of living after we become Christians. Listen, when you give your life to Christ, things change. In fact, everything changes. New values, new understanding. Oh, there's a maturing process. We're not fully formed. None of us are there yet. You grow in grace and knowledge of understanding of the things of God. But there's a change. This is the old lordship debate resurrected. I remember reading a... In fact, I've got the book in my office. (coughs) A gentleman who said... Grace is so strong, listen to this, grace is so strong that even if after coming to faith in Christ, you become an apostate and a worshiper of the devil, you'll still go to heaven. Now, I appreciate his wanting to exonerate grace, but that is certainly not the content of Romans chapter 6. Things change. Now, remember, Paul is still addressing that that heresy, that sin of antinomianism. I want want you to understand that word because we're going to continue to talk about it throughout the rest of of, uh, chapter 6. This is what Paul is addressing. Antinomianism is against the law. It means something, a a system of of thought that's against having to obey. That's what Paul addresses in chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Should we just sin because God's going to forgive us anyway? That's anti-law, anti-nomianism, anti-living for holiness. He addresses that here again. That's what he's addressing all the way through chapter 6. We should walk in newness of life. Things change. Listen, you don't become perfect, but something changes. We're involved in the process and progression for holiness, not in perfection. Now we're back to this reality in this verse of our solidarity with Christ as believers that Paul taught in chapter 5. So, the question is, do you understand that these facts, these literal facts, historical events of Jesus dying, of Jesus being buried, of Jesus rising from the grave, have theological meaning and practical application? That's the point. Look at this solidarity, verse 5. We've been united with him in the likeness of his death. It's the likeness of his death. No one died the death that he died. Also will be in the likeness, the similarity of his resurrection. He's saying, as sure as Jesus died on the cross, 
we are dead to sin. As sure as he rose from the grave, we are alive in newness of life to God. That's the point. So, do you understand why it's important to read the Gospels? Do you understand why it's important to familiarize yourself often and thoroughly with Jesus' life and death, burial, confirmation that he died, and his resurrection from the grave? Are you aware how important it is to continually preach those facts, remember those facts in your heart, in your mind? Paul says you lose sight, lose grip on those historical facts and you won't have the foundational basis theologically that will lead to living in the newness of life. Which leads us, number two, a second way that the facts of the gospel translate into aggressive sanctification. Verses six and seven. Gospel facts translate into spiritual freedom. Now this is really good news. Verse 6, you know this little phrase, well, we have been hammering it and coming back to it, noticing it, recognizing it, recognizing it. Please let it hang off of your mind, knowing this. People are always looking for, talking about, promoting a key to the Christian life. It's this, it's that. I'm not sure if there is one key. I think it's a whole key ring. But one of the main keys, the, one of the, the master keys on that ring is this little phrase, knowing this. Knowing this. There is such a world of insight in this. This implies that we study. This implies that we know. This implies that we remember. This implies that we read. This implies that we have devotions. This implies we have quiet times. This implies that we're we're sitting under sermons and preaching. Do you know the function of the pulpit, the function of body life, is to inform one another with data that makes a difference? Christianity cannot be lived instinctively or intuitively, just left to your own thinking. That's where heresy comes from. That's where antinomianism comes from. That's where wrong thinking comes from. Because you and I have minds that with given a little bit of spiritual truth and without the, the parameters of the covers of our Bible, we'll think of all sorts of radical ways to reconsider theology. He says, knowing this. He puts a nail right into this chest and says, do you know this? Now, the question I have is, okay, know what? What is this? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Namely, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is free from sin. Do you see how, how this is a... This is sausage links that just kind of lead one to the other. In order that, away with, so that. The first two words of of verse 6 reveal that theme, knowing this, knowing leads to growing. It's in reference to the facts of the gospel, the facts of Jesus' death and bodily resurrection. Biblical facts without theological explanation, however, are just history. 
I know a lot of people who study the Bible who aren't believers who think this is good history that gives us insight on the ancient Near East. But go to the other side, theological explanation without the veracity and historicity and truthfulness of the biblical facts is just speculation. I had a conversation with a, with a man who uh, is from another denomination who was telling me that you, you have to get the spiritual understanding of the Bible because we know those facts aren't all true. Well, Paul sure made the point here that if these facts are true, they have implications. Flip that over. If these facts are not true, there are no implications. So biblical facts without theological explanation, just history. Theological explanation without the truthfulness of the biblical facts is just speculation. Facts and meaning come together here in these two verses. In fact, the connective tissue of all of chapter 6 is Paul's defense against uh, licentious living, against antinomianism, against people who want to, to, to avoid holiness, not be serious about their sanctification. Don't worry about sin. Jesus has forgiven it all. You should be thankful Jesus has forgiven it all. But that doesn't cause us to not worry about sin, not be concerned about sin Look carefully at what we're supposed to know here. This is an interesting phrase. Our old self was crucified with Christ. What does this mean? To really understand this, you have to understand Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Maybe you know it. You're welcome to look there. Galatians 2, 20. Paul says, in the same, the same vein, same idea, he says, I, he personalizes it, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, if you look at the history of what happened on Calvary that afternoon, Morning leading in the afternoon. There were three people on the cross. Two thieves and Jesus. Paul was not a believer then. Paul did not die that afternoon with Jesus on the cross. So what is he talking about here? He doesn't even say I died. He says I was crucified with Christ. Same word that Paul uses in six, chapter 6 of Romans. I have been crucified with Christ. That's how closely the association is. Even the means of this execution. Then Paul says, this is the meaning. And it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in or through me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you want a a condensed explanation of what Paul said in Romans 6, this is it. Some people have said that Galatians is the mini Romans. It's compressed. The, The message of Romans is all compressed down. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. We heard that. We know that. We sing that. But just pull the car over for a second. Is that true? Let's just take yesterday. It was a Saturday. When you look back at your decisions, your conversations, your, your interactions, your actions, your thoughts, your errands. How much of what we did yesterday could be adequately represented as I was living with the conscious awareness and intentional deliberation that I want to do this for and through and about Jesus versus I'm just doing what I'm doing and you know God's around somewhere. 
Paul says the process of sanctification is turning down the volume on our own self-awareness and turning up the volume on the life that we live for and through Jesus. This is all about solidarity. The old self was crucified with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, his believers died with him in the sense of becoming dead to the reign and the power of sin in our lives. Now, we have to talk about this. A footnote on natures. My whole Christian life, I've heard people talk about the believer's natures. <clears throat> in fact, I remember I had a book, uh, a little booklet. It was a cartoon uh, booklet that uh, I was given in junior high um, where uh, it, was, it was, you probably heard the illustration, but it was all graphically mocked up. And it, the, 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 the message was this. Inside you are two natures like two dogs. And they're always fighting with each other. And which one wins? Ah, the one you feed. You feed the good dog, and he's going to beat up the bad dog. You feed the bad dog, and he's going to win. And the idea was inside you, you have two natures, the old self and the new self. And they're just kind of fighting each other. That's not what's in play here. Ephesians certainly says that's not what's in play. A believer has a new nature. Now, the question you have to ask is, then, why do I keep sinning? Hold on to that question. The old self has been crucified with Christ. Then he says, in order that, now we get some explanation, our body of sin might be done away with. A lot of speculation on what this body of sin is. I think it's, he's not being technical here. He's just saying our, our life, our body, our, our reality of living in sin is to be done away with. That's not a one-time action. That's what we do. We're constantly putting away the old man. Constantly putting away our body of sin. We, we don't do it one time. We're constantly, when we get to chapter 12, we're making sacrifice of ourselves. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible that leads to one of the most important statements in God's word. So that we would no longer be, here it is, slaves to sin. As an unbeliever, you and I were slaves to sin. What does a slave do? A slave obeys his master. A slave is under the reign of a master. A slave can't do anything that the master doesn't tell him to do. Paul uses that imagery throughout this chapter. He'll use it on the other side too. We'll get there. We're changed into slaves of righteousness. But the unbeliever is a slave to sin. Look at what it's saying. The gospel makes it so that we would no longer be a slave to sin. Just, you know that sin that you struggle with? You know what it is, that sin. It may be a sin of mind, it may be a sin of body. But you know what I'm talking about, that sin that you have confessed over and over and over, that you have gotten counsel on or that you've hidden 
It's that sin that's in your heart. It could be a thousand different expressions. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's one of those categories. You, you know, if you're a believer, you know that sin that has been so difficult for you, your whole Christian experience, don't you? I, I hope you know that besetting sin, Hebrews calls it. Do you understand that you don't have to do that? You don't have to think that. You are no longer a slave to that. Does that mean you're going to be perfect in regards to that sin? No. It just means you don't have to bow the knee and commit that sin every time it's a temptation. We're no longer to be slaves to sin. How does that work out though? Do you just go in your corner and (coughs) just kind of close your eyes and say, I have power, I have power, I have power. I wish it were that easy. We have a a graphic we're putting up during this series of two just worn out, gnarly boxing gloves. Chose that on purpose. That's the representation of what we should be doing with these sins in our life. Fighting with them. Fighting against them. Now, that little phrase at the end of verse 6 settles the debate of current evangelicalism. Do you have to really deal with sin? But look at the exclamation point in verse 7. For he who has died, that has died with Christ in the gospel, who has been converted by belief in Christ, is freed. Freed from sin. And the idea with those two together, you're no longer a slave, but now you're free, is that the shackles are broken. You don't have to sin in the way that you always did as an unbeliever. Now, this is such a delicate balance to talk about. Does that mean you will never sin again as a believer? Not at all. But it does mean you don't have to. The cross does not take away the presence of sin. It takes away its mastery, its power, its dominance, its dominion, its uncontrolled control over us. That slave metaphor is the backboard of of Paul's metaphoric explanation of the believers and sin. Verse 6, we're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 7, we're freed from sin. Verse 12, believers should not let sin reign or rule or master over us. Verse 14, it will not rule or master us. Verse 16, we're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 18, 20, 22, we have been freed from the slavery and power of sin. He, He couldn't be more clear or repetitive. And let me just tell you, in the next few months, these sermons are going to sound a lot alike. Because Paul kept saying it over and over and over from different ways. You were a slave to sin. And when you gave your life to Christ, you became a slave to righteousness. You don't have to sin. Which leads us into... The practical section. Three ways the facts of the gospel translate into aggressive sanctification. First way, the gospel facts translate into sanctifying certainties. Gospel facts translate into spiritual freedom. Number three, gospel facts translate into practical holiness. Now Paul gets extremely practical and implicational. 
he starts applying it. Again, he goes back to the idea of knowing and understanding the facts and theology of the gospel. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, he's explained that every possible way, we believe that we shall also live with him. (coughs) Again, this is not talking about eschatology. It's not talking about the future. He will talk about that in in chapter 8. Right now he's saying, you died to sin as Christ died on the cross and you died with Christ. He rose from the dead. Now you're alive to be being a new person, living a new life, newness of life. Verse 4 says, if we have, since we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Wow, did you see that phrase? We believe. You see the accent on knowing, being certain, understanding, knowing this. We believe that we also live with him. Let Let me just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that newness of life can be yours as a believer? Or have you, have you just given up? A believer should never give up in his fight against sin. There isn't one sin that Jesus has not, has not given you the power to overcome. We believe we shall also live with him. talking about our life of faith. We believe this. We live by faith. It pushes us to concentrate on what we believe, what we know. Remember, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? If you never get there, don't expect your thinking and your feeling to change. This living is not so much for the future. It's right now. Verse 9. Don't you just expect this word? Knowing that... Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead. See how repetitive this is? Paul can't explain it from enough angles. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. That's pretty simple. Jesus will never die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now the theologians uh, ask all over, uh, in what sense was, was death master over Jesus? Well, it wasn't. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, Jesus said. But in taking our place on the cross, he subjected himself to the penalty of sin. And that's the sense that it was master over him for a very brief moment. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9. Knowing, 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 knowing. Paul paints the reality, the certainty about Christ's resurrection Related to our living for him. How much power do you have to say no to that sin? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Is that powerful? But understand this. If you don't believe the resurrection actually happened... Your understanding of and motivation for sanctification will fall apart. Paul told the Corinthians, without the resurrection, we're, we have no hope. We're to be pitied. So how confident are we that sin has lost its power? Sin has lost its reign over us. Are we confident that Jesus rose from the dead? Those two go hand in glove. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's the atonement. He's already explained that in chapter 2, 3, and 4. He died in our place for our sin. He died to sin 
once for all. Book of Hebrews tells us over and over, once, once, once. Not annually, not repeated sacrifices. He died once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is really interesting. Christ died to sin in the sense that he satisfied sin's penalty and he died to break sin's power over believers. But then it says this, the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is, it's almost so, so lofty, you, you can't get a grip on it. Jesus lived for God during his earthly life, right? This is a present tense. He's living. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is living for God in heaven right now in a pretty godly way. Wouldn't you say? He's alive and lives to God. And that's how we are to live as well. We are to be as alive to God in our sanctification as Jesus is alive to God in his intercession as the resurrected Savior right now. That's just overwhelmingly burdensome and overwhelmingly encouraging. It's like, well, I can't do that. And then you think, wait a minute, that power is mine to try to live like that. He lives to God. Do you live to God? That's a real simple. Do we live to God? Jesus is our example for living. The question of facing every decision, that faces every decision, every trial, every temptation is this. Are we living to God? Are we living for God? That question will occupy the rest of chapter 6 all the way through chapter 8. But for now, Paul uses verse 11 to launch the practical application of our understanding of the facts and theology and response to the gospel. Look at verse 11. Even so, in other words, knowing this, knowing that, believing this, all that you know, even so, here is that key. It's on that key ring that unlocks it. Consider. Reckon is the old King James word. Reckon. Consider. Yourselves. To be dead to sin. But alive to God. How? In Christ Jesus. Let me provide some hands-on way to apply that. Do you consider, reckon yourself dead to sin? That's where the battle is won or lost. You will be tempted before you get home to sin. Maybe in this building, maybe right now, maybe in the car, maybe at lunch. I have every confidence you will be tempted to sin in some way before you get home. The first thing we have to ask is, are we aware that 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 temptation is there? Or, Or are we such... And that slavery mindset to sin that we, we just, we haven't been free. We, we're walking around with the chains on, the chains are dragging, the shackles on, the chains are dragging on the ground, distracting us, and they're not attached to anything. Here's some practical ways that you can apply verse 11. Considering yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. First, believe that your sin is forgiven in the moment of sin. Believe that your sin is forgiven in the moment of sin. 
Now, what I mean by that is before, during, and after the sin. <clears throat> you, want a, you want a strong deterrent to your sin? When you're about to sin in thought or deed, think, I remember clearly that Jesus willfully and willingly hung on a tree so that I would not die for what I'm about to enjoy. Secondly, believe there's a way of escape. His power is accessible. You know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You can't ever say, but this is too much for me. This is worse than anyone else. No one has been tempted. No one has had a trial like this. I am, I am the worst. This is, no one can relate to this but me. Paul says, excuse me, taps us on the shoulder. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Really? It's not that big a deal in the course of history. And God is, what's the word? Remember it? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, here's that resurrection power, will provide the way of escape also. And then it says, so you will be able to endure it. The temptation may not go away, but you'll endure it. How? By the power that's accessible to us because of Christ rising from the grave. And he says, a way of escape is there. So when temptation comes, are we looking for the way of escape? Do we, do we look for, for the hatch out of that? Growth and sanctification is growth in opening your eyes to look for the escape. Do, do you even look for it? Do I look for it? You don't have to sin. There is always a way of escape. Third way to apply this is remind yourself that you are alive to God in or because of Christ Jesus. When that temptation comes, <clears throat> do you remind yourself, wait a minute, wait, I'm, I'm alive to God. Do you die to yourself in that moment or do you push God and God's values, just elbow them to the corner until you can enjoy that sin? It could be lust, it could be envy, jealousy, fear, anger, revenge, anxiety, Hundreds of applications of sin. In those moments, mentally and bodily, do we remember, hang on, time out. Whoa, I am alive to Christ, to God. Now I want to read you a quote from the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This quote I read years ago, I was looking for it all week and I found it this morning. Kathy, thank you for including it uh, in this uh, presentation right now. I want to read it. <laughs> it makes so much sense to me. It helps illustrate and understand this, this passage so well. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, How can I say that I am delivered from the rule and the realm and the reign of the devil and of sin when I fall to temptation? Isn't that the question? It's a great question. 
Look at it in this way. Think of two fields with a road between them. The field on the left represents the dominion, the kingdom, the territory, the empire of sin and Satan. This is where we all were by our own natural birth. But as the result of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and upon us through the Holy Spirit, we have been taken hold of and transferred to the field on the right side of the road, delivered from the power of, the, of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. I was there on the left and now here on the right. Yes, But I spent many a long year in the first field. And the devil is still there with all his powers and of his forces. This is a picture of what often happens. As a Christian, I am here in the new field. And Satan cannot touch me. As we're told in John's uh, first epistle. Chapter 5, verse 18. That evil one touches him not. He cannot touch us because we're no longer in his kingdom. He cannot touch us. But he can shout across the road at us. Every Christian who falls into sin is a fool. The devil cannot touch us. Then why do we listen to him? Why do we allow him to frighten us? Why do we pay attention to him? We no longer belong to him. He cannot touch us. We know that scripture asserts our freedom as an actual fact. But because of the old habit, the old influence, like the slaves that have been set free, we tend to forget it. And when he speaks to us, we listen to him and fall under his spell. We should resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4, 7 says. But we fail to realize it. The whole object of the apostle in the sixth chapter of Romans is to get us to realize it. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. You are therefore to realize it, to reckon it. Realize that you are alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not true yet, perhaps in your experience... But though it is not true yet in your experience, it is true as a matter of fact. We've got to believe it. That's why the apostle writes it in this way. This is a matter of experience, not a matter of experience primarily. He is dealing with a matter of fact. He says you died as a matter of historical fact. When you became a Christian, you ceased to be under the rule and reign and realm of sin. This is a fact. He's not talking about your experience. He's telling you something that is true of you. Namely, that you have been translated by the Holy Spirit from one kingdom to another. End quote. If that's true. If we've been translated with a road from one field to the other. How far away from the fence do you live? How close, are we close enough to listen to the old self, to the old way? One of the things that we've said hundreds of times in our house, raising our sons, is this. Are you 
as far away from sin and temptation as you can put yourself? Or are you living life next to the fence? You hear all that fun in the old world across the road and you forget what kingdom you're really living in. I think Lloyd-Jones is right. Get away from the fence. Let's pray together. (coughs) With your heads bowed, let me just ask you, do you know the power and freedom of forgiveness and freedom from sin? Does sin debilitate you? There is a way of escape. But the way of escape is by thinking about historical facts related to Jesus. It's about understanding the theology represented by those historical facts. And if you have no power over sin, I want to invite you to give your life to Christ. Because in that moment of belief, he will baptize you into his death and Resurrection. If you have questions, don't hurry to lunch. My, my, my plea to you is please, our prayer room will be open to my right. Mike and Christy Walgie will be over there. We'd love to talk with you, explain to you how you can give your life to Christ, bear a burden with you. Father, all of us live with an earshot of the other side of the road. We know sin brings pleasure, but it's temporal. We know that sin brings satisfaction, but it always dissipates. Teach us to know in a more certain way than that, that we have newness of life, that there's a way of escape to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to our Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know that sin, Lord. You know that pattern. You know that way of thinking. You know that act, that action, that attitude. Woo us from it by the power of of Jesus' resurrection from the dead into walking in a way that's new, that pleases you and, Lord, we know, will bring lasting satisfaction to our souls. We need you to help us, inform us, instruct us, remind us and encourage us, cause us to fight the good fight against ourselves. We want to die to ourselves and be alive to you, Lord, for your glory and because we know it'll bring about our good. Because of Christ, we pray. Amen.